Good evening, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain. Sorry for a brief respite from, I guess, the big chatty forehead up here in Canada, but um, we had a certain amount of housekeeping to do as a result of uh, the... Um, strenuous invitations to not be present on various forms of social media. But as the old saying goes, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you whine. Win! Win! Not whine, win. Win, that's right, sorry. That's a bit of a fork in the old business plan there. But I hope you guys are doing well. It's a funny thing, right? So <laughs> I was um, thinking about doing a show last day or two. Had a whole bunch of stuff to get done first, so... Sorry about not being around for a bit, but we're back. I was thinking about doing a show, and, you know, lo and behold, part of me was like, ooh, something snazzy, something with flash pots and confetti cannons and backup dancers, uh, or, or something with a big, powerful, demonic fountainhead of Vulsuviac <laughs> reason. But actually, um, I just sort of realized what I really miss is chatting with you guys, getting your thoughts, getting your ideas, having these kinds of conversations so that, my friends, is uh, is what we're going to do. Did I do the cyber? <laughs> did I did I do the cyber attack on Twitter? I didn't do the cyber attack on Twitter. It's pretty wild for those of you who don't know. So, gosh, what has it been? Less than a week? Less than a week since I was uh, disinvited from Twitter. Hello, Houston. How you doing? You thought Steph gave up? Well, think again. And, yeah, let's um, talk about the Twitter thing. That is some pretty wild stuff, for those of you who don't know. And there was a hack this afternoon. Uh, it wasn't so much a, um, like, a takeover of people's accounts. There wasn't, like, I don't know, phone spoofing and uh, two-factor authentication kind of stuff and all that. But um, it was some... They seemed to get a hold of some internal tool for managing accounts. So what happened was, I think it was Elon Musk first, and he, he did not tweet, of course, but whoever took over his account tweeted, I'm feeling generous because of COVID-19. I'll double any Bitcoin payments sent to my Bitcoin address for the next hour. Good luck and stay safe out there. And these uh, Bitcoin scammers targeted the Twitter accounts of Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Kanye West, Barack Obama, and other famous tech executives, entertainers, and politicians in what appears to be a large-scale hack. Apple, Uber, and other businesses were also caught up in the sprawling attack. Now, you know what's interesting? A bit of a pattern here. A bit of a pattern. I'm sure, I'm sure you guys have seen it. I'm sure you guys have seen what's going on with regards to this pattern. But with the exception, perhaps, of Elon Musk, these are all... Famously woke, left-wing, bent-the-knee public figures. I could be wrong. Maybe there's a whole bunch of like non-leftists who were or non-woke people or whatever who were targeted. But it seems like they um, hit people kind of hard on the left. Again, I think Elon Musk is a bit more complicated a case. But obviously, you know, Gates is pretty pretty socialisty. Obama. And, uh, I mean, I guess uh, Kanye West was a little... It depends where he is on his, uh, <laughs> on his uh, bipolar cycle. But I think he's now against uh, Trump, or he was for Trump. Anyway, the wind blows, I suppose. But, um, yeah, so 
they then the guy made uh, you know six figures plus uh, so far out of this. Although it could be people cycling in and out, but yeah, it was quite uh, quite something. And 5:45 p.m. just today, Twitter support said we are aware of a security incident impacting accounts on Twitter. We are investigating and taking steps to fix it. Uh, fix it. We will update everyone shortly. And so Twitter began removing tweets of screenshots showing internal tools that were possibly used in the attack. So some users who tried to tweet got an error message. This applied, uh, appeared to apply only to verified users with blue checks. And you weren't allowed to change your password. You weren't allowed to sometimes even tweet, I think. And I think they've removed the restriction at some point of this, uh, at some point now. And that is something else. Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican from Missouri, asked Jack Dorsey, of course, in a letter to respond to questions such as whether the attack threatened the security of President Donald Trump's account and its impact on the security of other users. He said, I'm concerned that this event may represent not merely a coordinated set of separate hacking incidents, but rather a successful attack on the security of Twitter itself. A successful attack on your system servers represents a threat to all of your users' privacy and data security. So what have we got here? There was Elon Musk, of course, Bill Gates. Scammy tweets were seen in the feeds of fast food chain Wendy's, Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden, philanthropist Warren Buffett, musician Wiz Khalifa, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, celebrity Kim Kardashian. Um, scammers also appeared to have targeted athletes such as former professional boxer Floyd Mayweather, even a popular parody, parody account for God, along with cryptocurrency businesses. Cameron Winklevoss, Winklevoss, yes, one of those twins said all major crypto Twitter accounts have been compromised. He's a co-founder of the Gemini Cryptocurrency Exchange. Uh, we are investigating and hope to have more information shortly. So that is not uh, obviously good at all. Uh, it is not good at all because it's different if somebody can get into your individual account, but this was a system-wide compromise. How did it occur what tools did they get a hold of? Were there any employees, uh, internal rogue employees, who could be implicated in this? How on earth do hackers get to take over Barack Obama, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Kanye West, Jeff Bezos to promote a Bitcoin scam? How does this occur? That is... So posters on a hacking forum were selling screenshots of Twitter's administrative panel, which showed internal details like the email address registered with accounts when the account was last accessed, what phone numbers were tied to it. It also displayed the number of strikes locked against each account. I think that's a little sideways eight for me at this point. But uh, the images are being removed from Twitter for violating the website's rules because they show personal information, including the account's contact information. My God, that is something else. That is, uh, I mean, getting hold of people's personal information at such a high level, and who knows how many, who knows how many accounts have been compromised in this way, and what information has been gleaned, and what might now be possible for people who have access to this kind of information, and of course the other thing too, like as you guys know, I was a chief technical officer, and we of course had to deal with the viruses and things like that on a, I wouldn't say a regular basis, but you know it certainly did happen. And it's tough, you know, if they get in 
and they can plant things, right? That's that's the big issue, right? The big issue isn't, oh, they get in, you find them, you kick them out, and so on. The big issue is, did they leave something behind? Did they plant something behind? And are you going to be playing whack-a-mole for the next Lord knows how long to try and figure out how to uproot whatever might be in there? Uh, that is a, uh, it's a very serious big deal. To me, this is the largest and most serious hack in, oh gosh, I, I mean, outside of, I think the State Department had personnel files taken some years ago by potentially foreign actors, which I guess gave everybody access to everybody's blackmail files, like, you know, the security issues that may have impacted people's careers. But as far as social media goes, I think this is just about the biggest, uh, and uh, it is extraordinarily serious to have these kinds of accounts compromised. So this was a this was a a Bitcoin scam, it appears, and they did manage to get some stuff, obviously. But um, what if it was a bit more targeted? What if it was a foreign actor? What if it was promoting some sort of aggression in the geopolitical? Relationships. What if it was spreading some kind of uh, dangerous rumor that could have an impact on world peace? Uh, all of these things could be occurring, and it's uh, extraordinarily serious. And uh, it will be, uh, of course, the, the um, Republican politicians are asking, as I think they should, uh, you know, exactly what happened, because this is, of course, a place where the president uh, tweets and other people tweet, of course, uh, and... It is an extraordinarily serious thing. It's hard to imagine how something like this could be possible because it is not somebody, apparently, it doesn't look like somebody drilling in from the outside. It looks like somebody on the inside, at least to my sort of obviously outside view. I don't have any proof of any of that, but that's what it looks like to me. So, yeah, that is extraordinarily um, bad and... um, and interesting <laughs> on a, a wide variety of, uh, of different levels. So uh, let me just uh, get back to my happy-dappy chat uh, room area here. Let me just uh, bring this back here and make sure that I get... So uh, let's uh, get back to you guys and um, see what's going on with you. 100% you say it was an insider? It seems to be. It seems to be. They don't seem to have done nearly as much damage as they could. Shame they didn't dump all private messages. Gosh, can you imagine? Can you imagine what might have, uh, what might have occurred with regard to, to, to all of this if they had gotten? Uh, I mean, Warren Buffett's account was compromised, if I remember rightly. I mean, can you imagine if they had tweeted out a stock recommendation after buying it ahead of time? Could have made a whole lot of extra money over what they made from Bitcoin. So, yeah, same way all hacking occurs, really. Probably someone, an employee, using their own device in home office or something and getting a Trojan. Yeah, of course, because so many people are working remotely, that is a significant vulnerability for all of this as well. So, Prediction, Twitter will claim that their database was hacked, so all those pedo tweet blue checks made a decade ago are clearly planted by a hacker. I don't know. But here's the interesting thing, too, which is now, of course, if people if people have, you know, difficult or unpleasant or negative tweets, 
uh, are they just going to be able to say now, oh, no, but you see what happened was back that hack, they plotted stuff, they inserted stuff, they joy-readed time-traveled Russian hackers from the nth dimension. And that's, you see, what's happened. Now they've kind of given uh, a bit of an out to, I guess, quite a lot of people for all this kind of stuff. So we shall, uh, yeah, we shall see. But it's, uh, again, I, it's, uh, it's pretty serious stuff for sure, uh, as far as I can see it. So I would definitely uh, keep your eye on that. All right, let me just go and check in here with the lovely donors and see if they have any uh, questions, any comments we will get on to what you, I mean, I've got a lot of things that I'm mulling over and thinking about, but I can do solo shows for that. I do want to, um, uh, watching here for questions. But, uh, you know, you, you guys, it's an old thing that Freddie Mercury said. Yes, he is my muse in many ways. And, and I actually mean that quite, uh, quite seriously. So Freddie Mercury said, you can only sing as well as the audience wants you to. And that's kind of important, right? The more enthusiastic people get, the better you can do. And you guys pull some really great speeches out of me <laughs> with your questions and your comments. So I can sit there and try and wring something out, uh, which, you know, after the last week or two feels a bit like um, trying to drag an ocean out of a dry sponge. But um, with bouncing back with you guys is where the jazz magic happens. So that's why I decided to just let's go with this. All right. People with devices at home get a lot more sloppy using it for personal use as well. No one over the shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, imagine if you are... What are you going to use? Log me in. You can use uh, Splashtop. You could use remote desktop. There's lots of ways that you could hook yourself in from your home computer into the uh, your work computer, of course, uh, at, at Twitter or, or other places. So maybe uh, this is something like that. Uh, and uh, it's pretty strange. Um, <laughs> interesting. I like how oh, you're asking, not asking me. Uh, people who come in late, if you're not here on time... They're pro protecting Chrissy Teigen's account. Yeah, she had a bit of a harsh time of it last uh, last week, I think, uh, on social media as well, right? How do you know when to quit a good job that seems too challenging and stressful? <laughs> it's a very interesting question this week. Um, well, what do you mean by a good job? Do you mean a job that you enjoy? It seems too challenging and stressful. So that's interesting. You know, there's something called the, the Peter Principle, or it's all, also known as FUMU, uh, fudge up, move up kind of thing, right? And the Peter Principle goes something like this. Everybody gets promoted to just past their level of competency, right? Because, you know, you, you're good as a fry cook, so you get promoted to uh, cook, and then you get promoted to head chef, and then you get promoted to shift manager, and then you get promoted to restaurant manager, and you're not really good at that, and then you get promoted to regional manager, and you're not really very good at that. Now, they're probably not going to fire you because you have so much experience, but... You're just past where your competence level is, and that's pretty tough. And so when you see someone at the top of their career, like they've, they've moved up. All right, audio, what do we got here? Can you use sign language? Yeah, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> I do love the, uh, the Threadripper series. Um, I really do. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a really, really, it's great for video production. This is the AMZ, uh, AMD. Uh, the Ryzen, the Threadripper, they're great. Uh, and um, I don't know if it's the Threadripper, but every month or two, it's not even a blue screen of death. It's just a complete blank screen. And unfortunately, this time, what happened was, as as Windows is, is wont to do, uh, it says, um, 
I'm sorry that you had to reboot. Um, I have about 4,000 updates to do, so I'm just going to keep rebooting while your audience is waiting. And I'm like, hmm, time to get me some zen. So sorry about that. We're back. We're back, baby. So let's, uh, yeah, so we were talking about sort of when to quit, switch to Linux. Uh, yes, well, I had a friend of mine over last night, and uh, he was helping me. Um, I'm going to start reading. I have, I have so many books that I've never introduced you guys to. So before I did all of this, crazy, calm, exciting stuff. Uh, I was, as you know, I'm sure, I was uh, an actor, I was a playwright, I was a director, I was a novelist, I was a poet, and I was never very good at short stories at all. It's an art form that almost completely escapes me. But I was in the art world and the creative world, and I have so many, I have a, I mean, the equivalent really of five, six novels that I've never introduced you guys to, not even counting The God of Atheists, which is out to subscribers. And um, I've set up a comfy place where I've got an, an angled mic and I can sit comfortably and I'm going to read some of these uh, novels as, as uh, audiobooks. I, I love them so much and I poured like heart and soul into them. And for those of you who've never seen my artistic side, it's, uh, well, it's the wall side. You can see it on the top there. But um, so I'm going to um, get into that. So a friend of mine was over last night and he was helping, he's a good audio guy and he was helping me set up the the mic and and the mixer and all of that and um we were yeah we're talking about the world and talking about everything that um goes into it and uh, all of the uh, challenges that that currently face free speech and all of this and yeah I was talking a little bit about my uh, business career and my history in the business world which he didn't know much about he's a relatively newish friend spanking new brand spanking new and this Peter principle that I was talking about before, that, you know, you're good at stuff, you're good at stuff, then you get promoted just a little bit beyond what you're good at, and then you just kind of stay there. And um, that's really, really important to recognize. So if you are in a, bit, in a career and you're moving up, you're moving up, you're moving up, here's the thing. You always, 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 always have to check and see Am I still having fun? Am I still enjoying it? Is it no, no, not everything is always fun. You know, this show is probably about 75% great fun, about 10%, you know, just dull grind, housekeeping, technical stuff. Uh, about 5% of, ah! <laughs> and the rest is kind of a blur. But... Um, if you get promoted beyond what you enjoy, don't take the money. Don't take the money. Don't just take the money. This comes from a, um, oh gosh, this is long before the internet. This is back in the 80s. I was listening to an audio book. It was a libertarian guy. If anyone ever finds it, just let me know. I'd like to hear it all again. And he had an interesting analogy. And he said, that there's a story in the Bible, of course, that Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But Judas feels so bad about this that Judas goes to a tree and hangs himself. And then the legend says that the tree also died after Judas hung himself from the tree. Now, we are offered things in life. If we have talent, energy, ambition, if we are exploitable in some manner, then we are going to get offered things. 
we are going to get offered money, wealth, fame, prestige, access to famous people or and it doesn't have to be that big, but you will get offered something if you are of value. They will try to compromise you. Now, they don't necessarily mean to try to compromise you. They think that you have some great things to offer and they just want to dangle things in front of you to get you to to snap at it like an anglerfish, right? To, to strike thinking you're getting the worm when you basically lose the worm and mostly just get the hook, right? And so... In the business world, I can tell you how this works. It's pretty chilling, in fact. This is how it works in the business world. And I say this having been in the business world. Oh, I guess it's, it's probably a bit, of a, a bit of a fulcrum now. It's probably a bit of a balance. I, I was in the business world 15 years, and now I've been in the podcasting world 15 years. So in the business world, this is the way that it works. So the way that it works is... They will give you raises. Uh, they will offer you cool things. They will, um, and then they'll say, "You have to, um, you have to be the part. You have to be the part." So, uh, I was offered a car allowance, and I, of course, wanted to buy some not twenty-year-old clunker, but you know, some relatively not a rust bucket, not <laughs> Adam Sandler's car of seven colors, but something that was not new and shiny. And they were like, no, 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 because when you go and pick up clients from the airport, and we were dealing with clients from very big Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies, uh, because the software that I wrote was for very big companies to manage environmental issues and reduce exposure and emissions and groundwater leaks and all of that, and to stay compliant with regulations. And so they said, listen, you're going to go and pick up some VP of the Eastern region from XYZ Z Mega Corporation. You can't be picking them up in a in a ladder. <laughs> you can't be picking them up in a um, a Prius. I guess there were no Priuses back then. What what car am I thinking of? A no a Chevy Nova. <laughs> you can't be picking them up. You gotta you've gotta look the part. You know, and and you know, we, we you you've gotta start dressing nicely, you've gotta, you know, take really good care of everything and you've gotta present well and you've got like you've gotta start spending money. And that's what they do. Of course, they, they will encourage you. And, and the media does this and commercials do this. They will encourage you to start spending money. Now, once you start spending that money, it's a bit of a fluffy, you think you're flying, but it's a bit of a golden noose, right? Because you start spending that money, then you need the income. Because business, they don't want you to accumulate FU money, right? And so if they offer you a fair amount of money. They don't want you living lean and saving your money because saving your money means that you can become an entrepreneur and compete with them, assuming you can get past the non-compete. Uh, they, uh, you, you will have freedom to negotiate. Whereas if they can say, here's your spending, uh, here's your salary, keep your spending kind of around the same, and you, know, you get your 5K in a month, you spend 5K a month, then you're not able to save that much money. And then when it comes time to push against the grain, when it comes time to challenge the powers that be, when it comes time to do the big reveal, uh, and if you're on the technical side of things, that will happen, you know, because the, the salespeople will make all these crazy promises, as we all know, and then the tech people have to work nights and weekends to make it all happen, and sometimes you just can't possibly do it, and you've got to tell the board, and you've got to be honest with the investors and all of that. And so they will offer you money, and then they will encourage you to spend it. 
I had bosses who invited me to country clubs and you, you've got to join, you know, this is a great place for contacts and, you know, you got to move to a better neighborhood, you've got to get a nicer place, you know, success is a mindset, you've got to live in the world of abundance, you can't be living like it. money's about to vanish, you've got to have confidence and like it all, oh, it's, it's this tsunami of spend, spend, spend. Because if they can get you to spend, they got you by the short and curlies because you don't have the cushion. You don't have the FU money. You don't have the, you know, you should always try to keep six months of, of savings. Always, you know, gosh, I mean, this is something I was taught my whole life. And now, of course, under coronavirus, this is why you, you have these things, right? I mean, I've just taken a lot of big doof, doof, doof blows over the last couple of months. And you just don't know. You don't know. I mean, freedomain.com forward slash donate if you want to help out. But you don't know how things are going to play out. You don't know what's coming next. You don't know how things are going to play. So you've got to have yourself some cushion. And I knew someone, I was quite close to the guy, who got the money and just up to spending. Whatever money. He was like a pipe, you know. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't like you get a cup of water, you drink. He was like a pipe, you know, just stuff flowed through. You know, income, outcome, income, outlay. And he was never really able to negotiate much for himself and never able to take much of a stand because he was always like, well, you know, if I lose this paycheck, I can't make my mortgage. <laughs> it's like, how is this possible? Like, you're making good money. How on earth can it be possible? That, and, and listen, to, to be fair to the delightfully incomprehensible fairer sex, uh, women are a little bit like, we need a bigger house. We need a nicer house. We need this. <laughs> we need all kinds of uh, N-dimensional shrubberies around the house and we need uh, this, that, and the other. And you can really become a bit of a slave to that stuff, and you got to be careful. There's a, there's a reason why the word possession refers to things you own and a demon taking, taking over your soul and commanding you to do bad things. A lot of integrity comes out of just saving your money. I mean, I, it's that, like integrity is this big abstract moral value for sure, and, and we should practice it, and, and you know, not to the point of self-destruction, but we should practice it. But man... Um, it's, it's a lot easier to have integrity when you've got a little bit of saving that uh, is keeping you afloat. So um, so when it comes, the question sort of is, I, I am getting to the question, but I really, really did want to understand this, right? I want to sort of make sure this is, is clear to everyone, which is you do not want to operate beyond the realm of what you are confident in, right? And this is back to the story of Judas, right? So this story is, right, Judas betrays Jesus, gets his 30 pieces of silver, hangs himself, and then the tree dies. Now, how many of us take those same compromises? This is not as big as and dramatic as betraying the Son of God and changing the course of theological, philosophical, and human history. But maybe you love being an artist, and then maybe somebody says, hey, you're good with people, why don't you go to a couple of conferences and sell the art? Oh, you're pretty good at that. Why don't you go on the road and sell the art? And why don't you start becoming a manager and this, that, and the other? And there's lots of money and there's lots of prestige and there's lots of cool stuff along the way. And it's not the end of the world to taste that kind of stuff, of course. But what happens is if what got you into the field was your love of art and you end up becoming a manager or becoming a salesperson. And these things are fine. There's nothing, I'm not trying to diss on any of those, right? But if you end up 
betraying the love that gets you into something in order for to, to get prestige or success or recognition or money or something like that, it's not as dramatic. We don't go and hang ourselves like Judas did, Judas did. But you know what? The tree, the tree dies anyway. That's what you have to remember. You've got to water that creativity within you, that love of what it is that you do. That's incredibly important because there are a lot of people out there. It's really kind of interesting. There are a lot of people out there who are significantly threatened by your personal happiness. It took me a a little bit to sort of get the hang of this, to sort of really understand this, because I'm a generally pretty happy person. I mean, obviously, I uh, carry a couple of burdens and and have some knowledge that is, is challenging, but I'm a pretty happy person, and I've never been annoyed at people's happiness. Okay, so occasionally you get annoyed. I think like everyone does. You get annoyed at people's giggly, hysterical, in-your-face, over-the-top, manic kind of happiness and all that. But I've never really... Happy people don't bother me. I think it's great. You know, I, I like seeing happiness in the world. But there are a lot of people who, if you're happy, um, it's kind of like a personal affront. Because what they do is they fetishize their own unhappiness and they try and turn it into some you know, big soul-crushing burden, you know, like if only you knew how bad things really are. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I mean, things are things are pretty bad. I, I get all of that for sure. But the bombs aren't raining down yet, and we still have the chance to have this kind of conversation, which I hugely appreciate. But people, they take their unhappiness and they turn it into a kind of narcissistic god that they worship. And then they have this, you know, shiny, happy people holding hands, this REM style. Or as a friend of mine was uh, down at the beach and uh, in Los Angeles, and there was this guy selling pens. And the guy was saying, you know, Hollywood pens for Hollywood people. Well, it's not the worst catchphrase in the world. I've heard worse. Where's the beef, right? Hollywood pens for Hollywood people. And literally for years... For years afterwards, my friend would occasionally make this joke like, plastic pens for plastic people. You know, like the people who are fit and healthy and out there rollerblading in the sun that are just plastic and shallow and narcissistic and all of that kind of stuff, right? And this is a guy... Like, So the look, why was my friend back then troubled by the guy hustling and selling pens? Well, because this my friend was very talented. He was talented in music. He was talented in art. He was... Uh, a good guitarist, he was a good singer, and he could have done so much with his talents, but he viewed selling himself as an act of humiliation. Selling yourself as an act of humiliation, and that is really, really tough. That is really tough. Uh, If you think that selling yourself is somehow humiliating, you have not yet grown up, because the world doesn't care about you. It doesn't care about me. It cares about its own thing, its own family, its own ambitions, its own money, its own health, its own worries. It does not care. I mean, I want to start a philosophy show. You know what the world says? Don't care, right? And you've got to find a way to make people care, to make it valuable, to make it interesting, to make it worthwhile for them. And so my friend, this guy was out there hustling, getting his life going, uh, Hollywood pens for Hollywood people. And he was like, plastic pens for plastic people. Now, this guy, who was a young guy starting out selling pens, you know, he probably moved on to something else because he's just out there selling stuff, right? I remember once uh, I worked in a government office, 
And a guy came in wanting to sell something. And the level of this, you know, withering public sector semi-socialist contempt, this gale, acidic gale of anti-free market sentiment, just kind of, ooh, <laughs> did I walk into Rocky Balboa's punch the ass of a cow meat locker or what? They just pushed and hated him for that, right? Because, you know, I'm stuck in some dead-end government job or whatever, right? Uh, I was only there for a couple of weeks, but, uh, yeah, it was pretty, uh, pretty tough. So you have to really be careful. Uh, people, if, if you're happy, you know, like, why, why is it that some people dislike me so much? Well, okay, there's lots. Of, we, we do a whole show on why people, why some people dislike me so much. But I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm just a pretty happy person. And I think for a lot of people... Happiness is a sign of being a fool, uh, of of being blind. Um, but of course, you know, after doing this stuff for fifteen years and being in philosophy for over thirty years, I mean, gosh, nobody—well, gosh, close to forty years now. Uh, no, nobody can really accuse me of being blind to the evils of the world or the wrongs of the world. Uh, I grew up with them, and I've seen them all over the place. And I've interviewed hundreds of subject matter experts on the evils of the world. So I'm certainly not in the ignorant classification. Uh, the the uh, ignorance is bliss category. So how is it that I know the problems of the world yet remain pretty positive and upbeat and happy? Well, I'll tell you, but next time. <laughs> that is it. But if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy then this and, and you're knowledgeable, then that is a great threat to people who put down happy people as dumb. And what that means is that you end up with a short circuit to your own happiness. You you try to become more happy and then you're like, oh, no, I'm becoming false, shallow, plastic, shiny, happy people holding hands, right? And, um, you know, that song by R.E.M., was it Michael Stipe? It's not like it's everybody hurts. It's not, hey, everybody's happy sometimes, right? So you really do have to watch out for those who's, to whom your happiness is an affront to their essential ideology that... He who increaseth his wisdom increaseth his sorrow. And that is uh, not a good, that is not good. Yeah, they, they, are, they are attached. They are attached to unhappiness. Now, of course, the reality is that they don't know how to battle their unhappiness. So the question is, why do people end up with these sort of ideologies where to be deep is to be unhappy? <laughs> Jordan Peterson. And I think, I think, I don't know about him, of course, but one of the reasons I think why people do it as a whole is that they are unable to combat their own unhappiness. And that which we cannot conquer, we tend to worship. That which we cannot conquer, we tend to worship. And statism, some religiosity, um, climate change, I mean, that which we cannot conquer, we tend to worship. And if you can't conquer your own unhappiness then you tend to idolize it. You tend to worship what you cannot conquer. And so then the question becomes, can you break the religion or really the cult of worshiping suffering? Uh, that is a very, very tough thing for people to do. Because once you've invested in something as a virtue, it's almost impossible to dislodge in your mind. This is what Yuri Besmanov was talking about when he was talking about demoralizing people. Once you have turned something into a virtue, almost nobody will turn away from it in their own minds, in their own heart. That's just not, not going to happen. Uh, to convince someone that, like if somebody spent 20 or 30 years believing that suffering 
is wisdom and knowledge and truth and all happy people are shallow idiots, they're so heavily invested in that worldview and they've sacrificed so much happiness for that worldview that if they're wrong, the amount of unhappiness will then be incredibly serious for them. And when people... When people have based their identity on certain thought patterns for so long, it becomes their identity. It becomes their existence. It becomes all that they know about themselves. I mean, the self should be something we explore. It should be something that changes. It should be something that's dynamic, right? I mean, I'm not the same person I was when I started. I'm frankly not even the same person that I was two and a half weeks ago before YouTube and and Twitter uh, booted me off. I'm just not the same person because there's just more information. There's more knowledge. There's more challenges. There are more opportunities and so on. But you have to, this is what's so terrifying and terrible about ideology and why ideological people can't have love, they can't have quality relationships, because you're not dealing with a living human being, you're dealing with, you know, the NPC mean, the, the programmed robot that is in the service usually of pretty malevolent people. And you can't explore, you can't be curious, that's the triggered thing, right? Like that, that, that famous picture of the woman who's, who's upset, right? And... If you, I mean, I don't know how to put it exactly, but ideology takes away from you the challenge of curiosity. Curiosity is is the great gift. Uh, it, it is because curiosity is I don't know, but I'd like to. I'm not sure, but I'd like to become more sure. Curiosity is the essence of civilization. It is the essence of what makes us human. Because curiosity is combined, of two, is combined of two things. One, something you don't know, and two, something you believe you can know, right? Because curiosity, oh, I wonder what's under that dish, right, when you're a little kid, or I, I wonder what happens if I open this box, right? Uh, you don't sit there when you're a kid and say, I wonder what happens if I surf that cloud. I mean, usually not, because you can't surf the cloud, right? So curiosity is, I don't know, and I have some capacity to acquire that knowledge. And that's civilization, right? And, and if you want quality relationships, you have to dedicate yourself to curiosity, curiosity of yourself, curiosity of your environment, curiosity of your partner. It's a very famous thing. I've said this on the show years ago. I will bring it out again because I just realized this, this week that I, uh, I no longer remember all the stories I've told my daughter and I said, I'm sorry about the next 40 years, <laughs> but it's just how it's going to work. It's just how it's uh, going to work that I'm going to repeat myself. But when I was a kid, and I talked about this in a show recently, uh, there was a um, a French couple upstairs, and they had escaped the war. And uh, I remember, as I said the other day, uh, I brought up uh, one of my hamsters to show her, and she completely freaked out, screamed, and slammed the door in my face because she'd had terrible experiences with rats and rodents during the war, and God knows what had happened there. Things that are lost to the sands of time, unless she left some time capsule I'll never be aware of. But it was her husband who said to me, and I have no idea, like you get these little bungee wisdom fortune cookies when you're a kid. The, the dad said to me, he said, uh, ah, Stefan, if you, if you, you date maybe 20, 30 people over the course of your life, you know, you date 20, 30 people, but you get married, you will, uh, you will uh, end up dating uh, thousands, thousands of people because you and your spouse will be changing. I, I used to be able to do a French accent. I can't have anymore, apparently. You and your spouse will be uh, changing all the time. And <laughs> now I'm from Quebec, apparently. Ah, smoke and church. So curiosity is how you keep life afloat. Uh, 
certainty, uh, the, the, the ideology where, where you, uh, here's the question, here's the answer, here's the stimulus, here's the response. There's no humanity in that. There's no cushion of curiosity to bounce back the world and ask questions. You're just certain things are this way and anybody who disagrees with me is really bad. And, you know, we've, we've lost the curiosity of Christianity and we've replaced it with the victimized certainty of cults. And that's the brutality. And it's so funny, you know, to be referred to as I was many years ago as a cult leader, because I said you don't have to be in abusive relationships that are unrepentant. Apparently that's calling... But because I've relentlessly pursued curiosity, and I have a whole book on this called Real-Time Relationships, The Logic of Love, relentlessly pursued curiosity, I mean, that's the opposite of, of a cult, right? A cult gives, gives you, these are the questions, these are the answers. This is the stimulus, this is the response. And anybody who deviates from that must be attacked, right? And this is why, I mean, the modern world is increasingly, I thought originally it was going to turn into an asylum, and maybe it will get that way eventually, but basically it's turned into a cult. Like we all, we all know that kind of deep down at the moment, right? That, that's pretty clear. Like it's all, it's all turned into a cult. What did I say? That was wrong. People didn't like that I talked about IQ. People didn't like that I talked about this or I talked about, do they argue? Do they debate? Do they set me right? Do they, you know, I did a call-in show for 15 years. People could have called in and set me straight and given me the data and sent me the presentations. But no, they just rip out your tongue, right? That's cult behavior. It's cult behavior. And it is a sad thing. You know, that for 300 years, off and on, after the um, split in Christendom engendered by Martin Luther and the printing press, when he translated the Latin into the vernacular and people could finally get their hands on the text um, and read it for themselves, and then Christianity, Christendom, splintered, and everybody was certain, and everybody who disagreed with them was an enemy. And this particular kind of mindset. I don't know if it's partly innate, if it's partly, I think it's mostly engendered through circumstances and programming and indoctrination. But what happened was, I mean, look at the uh, Anabaptists. So the Anabaptists believed in adult baptism. They said, but you can't uh, baptize a baby because a baby doesn't know what's going on. So you have to have an adult baptism. You know, this transmogrified to some degree into the Baptist or Southern tradition, more Southern than Northern in, in the U.S., is born again, right? And you go and you dunk and you come up and you're purified of your sins and the Lord enters your heart and all of that. But the people who didn't believe in adult baptism would chase down the Anabaptists and they would hold their heads underwater until they drowned, saying basically, how do you like your adult baptism now, you heretic? Murderousness for the sake of disagreement is inhuman. It is using our faculties so little to their capacity that it is like anti-human, I guess. We can't be inhuman because we're humans. We can either be anti-human or we can be human, but we can't be inhuman any more than I can be. Uh... <laughs> so we have returned to that place where the gospel is delivered, the data is never allowed, the opposition are all heretics, and tearing out men's tongues rather than debating with them has become metaphorically the rule of the day. And I mean, this is why, you know, people are like, oh my gosh, you're not really going to talk about politics that much anymore. And that is, uh, that is the case because there is precious little reason in the realm of politics left. And this is, I mean, something I talked about many, many years ago, of course, I said, you know, when you got the postmodern when you got the postmodern pushback against the scientific method and objective reason, 
which was the inevitable hell-sent flower of Marxist ideology, right? Because Marxism was supposed to be scientific socialism. It was all supposed to be factual and data-driven and, and reality-based. And, and uh, then when uh, von Mises and Hayek and Friedman and, you know, a lot of other economists came along and basically disproved the, the, they proved that socialism could never work because it doesn't have a price signal, so you can't figure out even remotely how to efficiently allocate resources. And we're seeing that now in the COVID responses, right? You've got all this central planning and none of it's working, right? Whereas Sweden uh, has uh, had a higher death rate for some time, but now they're down below. And I think in the entire Swedish outbreak of COVID, people under 50, I think only 17 or so, 19 or so have died. So when the socialists, the communists, when it was proven to them that their economic system could never work, then they switched to propaganda, and this was the Salzburger running the New York Times and sending Walter Durante in to cover up the crimes of Stalin and report that bountiful harvests during the starvation of the Ukrainians and others. They went to propaganda, and then when the propaganda didn't work after Khrushchev revealed the crimes of Stalin and Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, the Gulag Archipelago, and all of that came out. Well, then they said, okay, well, reason and evidence now go against us. The reason of the Austrian economists and the evidence of the crimes of Stalin, now reason and evidence are going against us, so what do we have to get rid of? Marxism? Hell no. Because <laughs> that's, you know, Marxism is an ideology that just excuses the lust for power. So they didn't revise their doctrine, which really can't be revised. They said, oh, reason and evidence goes against us, so let's get rid of reason and evidence. And that was postmodernism subjectivism, relativism, and so on, right? That was just objective reason is a bourgeois, white, blah, blah, blah concept. It's prejudicial somehow. Well, I guess it is. Reason is prejudicial to the anti-rational for sure. But um, that whole play undercut our capacity to have rational discourse. And you can see this all playing out. You, know, you see these videos of you know, people are rioting and they're trying to tear down some statue and people say, well, what? Who is the statue of and why does it offend you? They don't have a clue. They're just the mob points and they go baying like a bunch of jackals after a wounded giraffe, right? Or people who, uh, I'm a socialist. Okay, can you define socialism? Niceness? <laughs> I mean, I have an answer, right? I'm anti-fascist. Oh, what's fascism? Oh, it's the blend of corporate power and the state and, and so on. It's like, oh, so then it's, it's the state with corporations so the problem is not the corporations but the state it's the problem like the problem is not religions the problem is when one religion can gain tr control of the government and use the government to impose its religious views on everyone else that's when you get these 300 years of civil war in europe um the problem is not corporations although i don't like corporations as a legal fiction but the problem is the state so the problem is the state in communism. The problem is the state in fascism. The problem is the state in national socialism. The problem is the state in mixed economies. The, the, state, the, the problem is the state. And so being anti-communist and being anti-fascist is the same way of just being against the state. <laughs> we actually so, so, I mean, so, so many allies, but, you know, that is, uh, that's the way things roll, so... All right, so let's uh, get back to your questions. I hope that was uh, helpful and interesting. So, yeah, the, the fact that we are down to street battles is uh, kind of inevitable, right? Uh, right, Stefan is mesmerizing. Woo. 
<laughs> charismatic cult leader. Well, I'll I'll take one of those, right? All right. Um, what have we got here? I guess go do. I want to go do something more valuable other than watch this stream. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if 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 what I'm rolling ain't, ain't hitting you, then. Um, Everyone needs to watch the video, 1969, G. Edward Griffin, Re-Communism and Race. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. It's really, really good. Uh, it's really, really good. All right, what have we got here? Let's get some... Throw me, uh, throw me some questions. Throw me some questions or some comments. Feed me, Seymour. How to share gifts on Android? <laughs> I, I don't know. I do not know. And of course, yeah, so uh, you can subscribe to me here uh, um, for now, DLive, um, uh, DLive.tv forward slash free domain. And um, uh, I guess I'll just run through this real briefly while I'm waiting for the questions to uh, slither up. Uh, here's the latest and greatest, right? So please um, go to FDRURL.com forward slash newsletter, FDRURL.com forward slash newsletter. Sign up for that, please. Uh, you can, of course, subscribe to the Free Domain Podcast. That's at fdrpodcasts.com. It's a whole custom interface for dealing and searching for and organizing the podcast. So I hope that you will check that out. Bitshoot.com forward slash Free Domain Radio. Um, library, open.lbry.com forward slash at Free Domain, colon B. I don't know if the colon B is necessary. Minds.com forward slash Stefan Molyneux. Steamit.com forward slash at Stefan.Molyneux. Gab.ai forward slash Stefan Molyneux. Oh, uh, I guess we should get rid of that. Uh, not Twitter. Facebook.com forward slash Stefan.Molyneux. Instagram.com forward slash, forward slash Stefan Molyneux. So um, that's uh, where to follow me at, uh, at the moment. And uh, let's see here. Let's get to, your, get to your lovely cues. And also let me make sure I keep forgetting this. Let's go back to the uh, free domain server. Here we go, here we go. Let's get to the questions from there. Here we go, here we go. Can you give me some advice on how to properly propose changes or improvements to people when you are new in an environment, work, school, church? Mm. That is... So there's, there's two, two, two fundamental aspects of improvement that you're going to be talking about in life. Let's keep it nice and... Right, a lot of things boil down to some fairly simple principles, though they are very complex to uh, to put in. Like gravity is a principle, but engineering is complex. So, the two things that you're going to try and improve in people in the world: number one is efficiency, and number two is morality. Now, efficiency is a big uh, challenge, and the way that you try to improve things on in efficiency is you simply have to run the numbers, you have to get people to agree with the assumptions. This is, you know, basic business plan 101. You have to get people to agree with your assumptions and agree with the improvements, and then hopefully the cost-benefit works out, right? So back in the day, uh, there, is, there are these things called environmental site assessments. So if you buy and sell land, you don't want to start building a hospital, and it turns out that there was a a plant that made batteries there 50 years ago and the ground is completely contaminated with battery acid and, and it's just a complete mess, right? So a, an environmental site assessment, you do some of it 
uh, in the records office at the local government looking at the history of the site. And then you go on site, you take soil samples and you make sure there wasn't some gas station there that had some horrible leaking underground storage tank full of uh, God knows PCBs or PCBs or whatever, right? So that's an environmental site assessment. And it's very common. It's done all the time when property changes hands and usually it has to be done um, legally or, or at least from an insurance standpoint. So the software that I first started to develop was around uh, gathering the information. of Because what would happen is you'd hire people to do these environmental site assessments. They'd give you these big bulky Word documents, and they'd go in some folder, and then you'd have to have it done again, and you'd, you couldn't track your liability, your exposure. So basically, we turned things from written reports and Word reports into a big database that allowed uh, companies to you know, track their environmental liabilities, their exposures, remediation that was needed, cleanup that was needed. And uh, that, that way, of course, when they transferred the land as well, you wouldn't need to commission more environmental side assessments. It would save money, blah, blah, blah. So the basic, how do you improve, how do you sell this stuff? Well, you say, okay, well, you know, an environmental side assessment costs like, I don't know, $5,000, right? How many of them do you do every month? Okay, well, if you use our software, uh, we have a company that we work with that will immediately give you 50% off, right? Okay, so $5,000 goes down to $25,000. So for every site assessment you do, you save $25,000, right? So that's not bad, right? And then, you know, once you find out, you know, how many site assessments people do. I'm sorry, this is kind of old, old stuff for me, but I hope it's interesting to you guys. So let's say that they do, uh, you know, a big company can buy and sell uh, a lot of stuff over the course of the year, right? So if they're saving twenty five, um, sorry, twenty five hundred bucks uh, per site assessment, and let's say that they do a hundred uh, every year, then it's quarter million dollars a year that the software can save them. And then you say, ah, yes, but the software only costs, you know, I mean, gosh, the very first one we sold was five thousand dollars, and then we ended up selling one to a very large American corporation. Uh, with cross-border, cross-language, uh, Chinese, Spanish, uh, English, uh, and metric, imperial, you name it, uh, web interface, uh, local interface, databases synchronized across multiple time zones overnight, and that was well north of a million U.S. dollars. This is back in the day, so this would probably be closer to two million U.S. dollars now. So my software went from $5,000 to, to uh, $2 million, but the cost-benefit remained pretty much the same. So if you can save someone a quarter million dollars a year, what can you charge for the software? Well, you can certainly charge a quarter million dollars for software that's going to save them a quarter million dollars a year because it pays for itself in 12 months, so to speak, right? Plus, not only do you, plus also it comes with its own steak knives that can cut through a can, but uh, not only do you save money doing the environmental site assessments, but you then have a database where you can search up and you can have and you can transfer to other people who might have the system or at least print them out. And so you save money and you have the database in a searchable, summarizable format where you can say, oh, here's all the money we spent, here's what we remediated, here's all the risks and exposure that we reduced and so on, right? And then you can cycle and schedule if you need to do them on a regular basis, all this kind of stuff, right? So I'm sorry to give you like the business one-on-one. I'm sure you guys know a lot of this stuff. But if you're just looking to improve efficiency, then you have to have a pretty solid case. You have to have the numbers. And that's how you sell what it is that you do. So another um, very, I won't go into as much detail, but another software package that uh, I worked with, uh, they were all around efficiency. Another software package that I was director of marketing uh, for this one. And what happened was 
um, all, oh, it's infrastructure, really. So, I mean, think of all the schools, right? Think of all the schools in your country, thousands of schools in your country, right? Maybe more. Now, each one of those schools was built at a different time, and they have different quality standards, and the roofs need to be replaced, and the windows need to be replaced, the boilers need to be inspected and replaced, the HVAC needs to be cleaned. Like, there's just a whole bunch of maintenance that needs to get done, and it's seriously not sexy. You know, it's like no politician, you know, cuts a ribbon when you fix a roof, right? But it's all essential. And there's some stuff that's got asbestos that needs to get pulled out, and the parking lots need to be repaved and all this kind of stuff, right? Now, mostly what happens in the government and in private industry too is you got a lot of this stuff and you have a whole department that manages this infrastructure and they're mostly reactive. Oh man, the roof's leaking. <laughs> we gotta go fix the roof. And so you can't plan or predict some years will be kind of lull, some years will be insane and you'll need like 10 to 20 times the budget because everything's failing at once or the, the, the uh, windows are all need to be replaced at once. And you... So the software, what it did was you would um, do one of these inspections and you would enter the information and the software would tell you for the next 20 years how to budget for these kinds of product life cycles. And uh, it was hugely valuable software, uh, very uh, good software, very engineering heavy. And predictability is pretty important in, in the business world. I mean, even in the government world, right? Knowing what your budget is. Like if you say... If you say halfway through the year, I need 10 times the budget, that's a pretty hard thing to do. But if you say, hey, three years from now, I'm going to need 10 times the budget, and here's why. And maybe what I can do is I can fix the roofs in these 30 schools. I know they're going to need to be fixed because they're in the life cycle. I can move some of those to this year. I can move some of them to the year after. Uh, and so we can smooth out these capital requirements so it's not this massive lunar lander uh, vector graphics of, of uh, <laughs> I don't know, uh, um, Amber Heard's... Uh, relationship with Johnny Depp or something like that, up and down, up and down. So that's a way of selling uh, something that you're not reactive, you're not just begging for money or flush with cash and people are suspicious of why you need all of that, but you can sort of really, really plan ahead of time, move things and smooth things out and be predictable, right? Because you know what it's like in life. You've got predictable expenses, you've got unpredictable expenses, and how much is it worth to you to not have nearly as many unpredictable expenses. Well, that's what preventive maintenance is all about. So anyway, this was another part of my career. Another part of my career was tracking business from um, where, where do you want to invest? You want to invest in stuff that's the most profitable. And the one that's the most, like whatever goods you're producing that's the most profitable, it's going to change on a constant basis, right? Obviously, um, uh, beach towels are more profitable in the summer than in the winter, to take a silly example, right? And so most businesses measure... Um, they measure how much, you know, uh, how much does it go for, what's the demand, and so on. But if you actually can measure by profitability, then you can make sure that you're sh constantly shifting resources into the goods and services that, that are most profitable, but can change week over week. And the software was designed to figure out the profitability of a live-running giant factory and so on. It was really, really cool stuff. I really, really like the technology. I love technology as a whole. So when you're teaching, when you're trying to change people's minds about efficiency, then you just got to have the numbers and you got to make the case and don't have a conflict of interest. It's like, hey, you know, my brother who fixed roofs would love to fix your roof or whatever, right? So if that's the case, this just your this your business 101. This is my first 15 years of my career was just making, because I did a lot of technology, but I did a huge amount of sales, as I'm sure you can uh, see a huge amount of sales and marketing. So 
just you just got to get the numbers. It's not personal. It's not like I have a vision. It's like you just got to have the numbers and you got to have buy-in to the premises and so on, right? And you got to ask a whole bunch of questions. Don't try and sell anyone anything until you know what it is that they want. Like we didn't just wander into some place and say, we can save you a quarter million dollars a year on environmental site assessments because they'd be like, dude, I run a pizza place. I don't really do those, right? You have to, it's a lot of asking questions and doing research and then making the case as you go forward. Like I once, gosh, I once did a whole giant program where I took data from publicly available and privately subscribed databases and it assembled an entire business proposal for about 5,000 companies across North America about expected profitability and um, expected return on investment and costs and time to implement and all of that. And we mailed those out and this turned this entire company around because before it was they had to do all this stuff by hand and then they had to mail it out. Uh, They would maybe get out five a week and we put out like thousands and thousands and thousands in just uh, a couple of weeks because I was able to get all the data put it all together. And I'm, I was an expert back in the day of uh, getting stuff from a database and producing word processing documents, which could then be further tweaked or a little bit if people needed it. And we just sent them out. Or we'd invite people to come to a website where the whole business plan was animated for them if that was necessary, because I could program that as well. So anyway, just make a plus. Now, when it comes to improving people's ethical life, that is... Um, that is a giant bomb diffuse, and do not <laughs> do not underestimate just how incredibly challenging that is going to be. That is going to be. So when, oh, Sanjiro, first time watching Steph live. Hi, all. Hello, hello back. Hello back. So the way that you try and get people to improve things morally is you have to have some agreement on the morality. So my friend who was over last night who was helping me set up the microphone, which took about 20 minutes, and then we spent an hour and a half chatting about the world, which is great. But uh, he said, um, he said, you know, like where I go to church, there's like 20 or 30 young, attractive, intelligent, nice women. But, you know, these pencil neck fedora wearers won't go there because eh, I don't believe in God. It's like, dude, you share 90% of the values with these women. You share 90% of the actual moral values with these women. And, and yet, because the God thing, you're just going to go date some feminist and impale yourself on some society for cutting up men manifesto that's going to be rolled up like some... <laughs> it's going to be rolled up like some haiku from hell, some origami from hell and plunge through your testicles when you're left standing on a, a board as they climb up to unscrew the light bulb saying, that's no more jokes about feminism that we can make today, is there? So, you know... Get, get thee to a nunnery, <laughs> get thee to a churchery. And so that, where you have a massive overlap of values, that's where you can have change, right? So, you know, with me, I say, okay, well, do we want a society with less violence? Sure. Do you believe that initiating the use of force is wrong? Yeah. Okay, well, let's start talking about spanking. Let's start talking about maybe circumcision. Let's start talking about, you know, get it personal, right? Like, if you're having a debate with someone and they like the government to do things, then they then you could say, well, why don't you order the government to agree with you? Why don't you just tell the government? Like, why wouldn't you order the government to force me to agree with you? Right? And we debated, you know, one of the last things that happened was my great chain of debates with Marxists before I got uh, deplatformed, which sounds like I'm uh, Tom Cruise stepping off a movie set. Boom! 
lame height joke. What can I tell you? He can come back with a good hair joke. That's fair. But with the Marxists, they want everything done by the state. They want everything done by force. So, you know, one of the reasonable questions, which was going to come up in my next one, which sadly probably won't happen now, is, um, okay, well, why don't you just order the government why don't you tell the government to order me to agree with you? It's like, no, we're having a debate. And it's like, yeah, that's the point. That's the point, is we're having a debate. The moment you bring the gun into the room, the moment you bring the state into the room, you're no longer having a debate. You're just wrestling over the gun. That's not civilized, right? So find the area of agreement and extend it. Find the area of agreement and then extend it. I mean, when the general theory of relativity first came out, people were shocked and appalled and thought it was heretical and so on. But at least they had the agreement called the scientific method. So there was some place where they could meet and do good things and, and eventually they, it won over, right? So, Will work and career coaching be one of your new focuses? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, I am in a state of um, curiosity with regards to my future. Because everyone thinks that love is... I love you. No, that's not. Usually that's manipulation. Not always. Usually. And the real question, the real, the real three-word statement with regards to love is not, I love you, but tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. If you're not curious about someone, you don't love them. If you don't want to get to know them better, and this includes yourself, you don't want to get to know yourself better, you don't love yourself. You don't have respect for yourself. So I hope that helps. Um, Question, self-knowledge helped me tremendously to better myself and sink in my line to my desired goals, one of which is to have a good family, be a peaceful parent for many children. Though that came with the realization that time is running out, mostly for me, to find the rarest yet aging gem who will embark in this journey. I fear by the time I'll meet a good girl, I won't be able to have children. What is the proper mindset to square this circle? Well, you can, you're a man, so you can go younger. And if I were in your situation... I don't know how old you are, right? Um, but to for an older man to get a younger woman is somewhat traditional. Uh, it's somewhat okay. And for the, the reason being that you can give a pretty comfortable life to a younger woman, and she's still fertile, and you're still fertile, and so you can have kids. Um, it, it's a little unfair to the young men and in your life or, or in this woman's life, like if you kind of bungee in, let's say you've got some money, you kind of bungee in and, you know, you can jet her off to Cabo for the weekend or whatever and, and so on, or, you know, you have property or whatever. So it's a little bit unfair to the men around her, but, you know, all's fair in love and war, so to speak. And also, um, if you're committed to peaceful parenting, it's most likely that the other guy around her is not and therefore... You should be the father of, of her children kind of thing, right? So uh, aim younger for sure. And of course, men can generally survive multiple relationships better than women. A woman's heart is much easier sanded away by repeated ball sacks, I suppose you could say. Uh, whereas men tend to be a little bit more robust when it comes to surviving uh, and still being able to attach or, and pair bond uh, out of multiple uh, relationships uh, simply because of the vulnerability and the attachment and so on. Uh, that's kind of like there's this this vicious cycle that's going on in society at the moment. It's pretty brutal, man. It's pretty brutal, which is um, men are scared of women, so men will pump and dump, pump and dump, right? Men are scared of women, so men will 
date a woman and then recoil and abandon and vanish and ghost and all that kind of stuff, right? And then what happens is the women who are ghosted get more and more resentful towards men, which produces more and more feminists, which makes men more and more scared, and therefore men manipulate and use women more, which makes more feminists, which makes men more scared. You get all that, right? So let's see here. Uh, Deplatforming? No, I don't really want to talk about that. It's so much nicer to talk about other stuff, at least at the moment. Oh, Nick Cannon. Yeah, he got kicked for anti-Semitism, if I remember rightly. Let me just let me just double check that before I start casting uh, aspersions. But uh, yeah, that's right. Viacom CBS. Uh, Nick Cannon was let go uh, by uh, Viacom CBS over anti-Semitic comments. He made a lot of, if I remember rightly, he made a lot of fairly negative comments towards whites. But I guess the anti-Semitism was a bridge too far, and he's uh, he's gone. He's gone. And um, gosh, who offered him a job? I read that somewhere. Oh, yeah. Diddy Combs offered him a job after he was fired by Viacom CBS. Puff Daddy offered him a job. So I guess he'll he'll land on his feet. <laughs> All right. Um, wondering my position on minarchism. So minarchism is a very small government, a government that is police, military, courts, maybe jails, uh, minarchism is great, but minarchism uh, retains the principle. It's like saying, what is your position on minor slavery or a small amount of slavery or a small amount of murder or a small amount of, right? That's not the Aristotelian mean. Like the Aristotelian mean is uh, if you're underfed, you're starving. If you're overfed, you're fat, so you need the right amount of food. That's sort of the Aristotelian mean. He didn't mean you need a certain amount of axe murder against society. Not too little. Not too much. The Goldilocks principle only applies to continuums, not to moral situations of black and white, right? So like a lack of courage is cowardice, an excess of courage is foolhardiness, and you need courage. If you have no anger, you're going to be pushed over, uh, pushed around all the time. If you have too much anger, you turn into a bully and you get blowback and all that. So, And not that fun Kurt Russell kind. But um, so with minarchism, it still breaks principle. And the other thing too, a minarchist society which is basically the American experiment, right? The American experiment was minarchism. It lasted for less than a couple of years, really, because while Washington was still president, he was writing down the Pennsylvania wheat farmers for his tax, and barley tax or wheat tax or whatever it was. And um, it, it only took two, two and a half generations to break the bounds of the Constitution almost completely. And so it doesn't tend to be very stable at all. And what happens, of course, is a minarchist government produces a massive amount of wealth because of the lack of government interference in the productivity of the free market. So a minarchist government will produce a massive amount of wealth. And then what happens is that that wealth is then used as collateral to create big, giant, massive, endless government programs. So there's no accident that the smallest government in the world, the American government from the late 18th century, turned into just about the largest government in the world, which is the modern American monster. So... My family originated from Shanghai, China in the 1920s. They were business owners who were chased out of China by the communists. A lot of the patterns that lead up to the commie takeover is being repeated. My grandmother agrees with this, and she is very scared. She's advising me to invest in gold, since that is how her family escaped China when hyperinflation hit. What are your thoughts on the best ways to protect myself from the impending world inflation? Listen, I don't want to give any financial advice. I'm not a financial advisor, and Peter Schiff is pretty good uh, on this kind of stuff. Chris Martinson is pretty good on this 
kind of stuff. Um, Gerald Salente is pretty good on this. So lots of people that you can, you know, if, if you have stuff, uh, stuff is better than fiat. Uh, gold is better than fiat. Crypto is better than fiat, in my humble opinion. But I would say um, uh, <sighs> gold, gold's tricky, and gold is tricky. It was a lot, uh, it's hard to know how transferable or transportable the gold is going to be, and I know that uh, Schiff and others have got ways around that, not around that, but ways to legally allow you to transfer gold holdings uh, pretty, pretty easier. Uh, uh, so I would say... Um, yeah, fiat, fiat is pretty tough, and try and find, uh, you know, food, food and water, food and shelter in those order are pretty, you, you can't survive, like, um, three minutes, three days, three weeks, right? You can survive three minutes without air, you can survive three days without water, you can survive three weeks without food. So air, we can handle, you need your water, you need your food, and you need your shelter. And the big question, of course, is, you know, I mean, I assume you're in the States, right? So... When the communists were taking over in China, people could escape to the States. And now, where do you go? It's a big, big question. The George Floyd body cam transcript came out. It would be worth a show. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if I thought the facts mattered at this point, I would uh, probably work quite hard on that. But um, I'm not... I'm not really convinced that facts matter at the moment in the realm of politics. Otherwise, I'd be more interested in doing shows on politics. Now, I know until recently, you know, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why some of the powers that be didn't like me is that I, I have been spending a lot of time and energy and at some personal risk pushing back against these race-baiting narratives of, you know, the cops murdering uh, helpless and innocent and unarmed black uh, men and so on. And, and... I really did break ranks with most of the people who I might otherwise have agreed with in the past with regards to George Floyd. Like a lot of people were like, from Janine Pirro to, to, I mean, there's a lot of, you can go through the list. Everybody was like, oh, this is murder. You know, this is straight up, you know, this one can't, it's like, I don't know, man, an officer with 18 years experience um, killing some guy right in front of everyone when he's wearing a body cam. I don't know. It seems uh, it seems unlikely, and I, I was pushing back on this from the very beginning, and so that's a challenge. You know, they want to do all this race baiting and to get this rioting going, and yeah, I know the riots have died down for now, but they'll they'll come back. They'll come back for sure. And so, I would say that I'm not sure that we're in a place in particular where facts matter anymore, and I'm very very proud of. Honestly, and, and I think we as a community should be very, very proud of this, that we, we've saved a lot of lives. Let me straight up be honest, you know, we, we saved a lot of lives in this show. We've saved a lot of lives in this show. I mean, we've helped push back against riots that were getting people killed, a lot of people killed, and that helped a lot. My oppositions to the endless wars in the Middle East and elsewhere, I will go to my grave enormously proud and pleased at the number of lives that I've helped to save with relentless and exceedingly popular anti-war views. You know, there was this giant thirst and hunger to go to war or expand the war 
against Bashar al-Assad in Syria. You remember this from not even that long ago. It's kind of come in waves where he was supposed to have dropped chemical weapons on his own people when he was winning the war and was just about to take the last town. And it was nonsense. And it turned out to be nonsense. And again, I wasn't alone. I wasn't as alone in that as it was in the George Floyd one, but uh, pushing back against that war, you know, this has an effect. This has an effect. They try and sell this stuff. And, you know, it's like if there's some cheesy guy out there selling you some shoddy good or trying to sell you some shoddy good. And some guy comes along and twists it and it falls apart. The guy gets pretty mad. You know, like, like, the, like the pimp in Risky Business, you know, in a recession. Don't ever fuck with another man's livelihood. And the livelihood of the military-industrial complex went crashing up against the stern wall of philosophy that this show represents at its best. I'm obviously not taking sole credit or anything like that, but, you know, we, we were part of a human chain that kept the dogs of war from the innocent people of the Middle East. That's why it's so funny when people call me some sort of racist or whatever. It's like, you tell me, somebody who's worked harder, put more on the line, taken more risks to try and stop brown Muslims from getting killed. You tell me what, what kind of racist I am that I have burned up a lot of social capital opposing the military-industrial complex. Who was it who was talking the most on YouTube and other places about Barack Obama dropping 100,000 bombs on innocent brown people in the Middle East? Hmm? Who was doing that? Who was pushing back against wars in Syria that would have killed innocent people? Who was pushing back and opposing even the wars in Afghanistan? Who was pushing back and opposing the war in Iraq? Who did a presentation? I actually went on TV to talk about this. Iraq, a decade of hell, where I unpacked every last horrifying detail of the effects of George H.W., sorry, George W. Bush's war against the Iraq, against the Iraqis. The genetic destruction of the population of Fallujah with depleted uranium weapons, the, the body count, the death count, the death count not just from the weapons but from the lack of sanitation and the lack of plumbing and the lack of medicine. You tell me who's done more, at least in alternative media, and more successfully to bring the plight of these poor, poor people in the Middle East from these endless bombs and radiations and tortures of the military-industrial complex largely coming out of America. Oh, but he's such a racist, you see. It's so sad. It really is sad. Or, you know, here's another thing too, right? In America, you can see, and I know it's controversial in terms of the numbers, I get all of that, right? But, you know, to some degree, taking some aspect in the face value... The COVID cases are going through the roof, right? And why are the COVID cases going through the roof? Because of George Floyd. Because the COVID cases were going down. And then they began to slow going down. Just when the George Floyd protests started occurring, where hundreds of thousands of people were jammed face to face in pretty narrow streets and narrow areas. And sure, there was some fire burning away the virus, but obviously not enough 
two-week lag, boom, cases started going back up again. Now I get not a lot of young people are going to die, but 5% of people with COVID do end up with these long-term health issues that are actually pretty bloody debilitating. And so when it comes to like, okay, Black Lives Matters, okay, well, just letting, uh, there were a lot of blacks who were um, not just rioting, they were protesting and all of that as well. I mean, it was a bit sensationalist to just show the rioting. There were obviously legitimate protests and, and all of that. But allowing for that kind of assembly to occur in the middle of a pandemic, how is that Black Lives Matter? Because you are, I mean, obviously the riots cause, cost people their lives, but just the spread of this illness, which then is going to go to elderly black people who are going to die, how is that Black Lives Matter? I mean, if it's too dangerous to sing a hymn in a church, how is it not dangerous for tens of thousands of people to gather in fairly narrow areas and share a fair amount of spittle, so to speak, in, in, in speeches and outrage? So, you know, I, I helped, with your help, I helped prepare people a lot, a lot for coronavirus, and coronavirus hits blacks particularly hard, and I'm very happy and proud of my work that I did to try and help the black community get more prepared for and save lives in that community as well. Anyway. These are just facts. And uh, if facts mattered, <laughs> that would be important. Any personal favorite fairy tale and the morals it instills in children? Oh, absolutely, yes. I have, I have one favorite fairy tale. And I actually just told a pretty lengthy version of it to my daughter. So I won't tell you one that long. And everybody knows it anyway, but just very briefly. It's uh, The Emperor's New Clothes. It's one of the quintessential philosophy tales. One of the quintessential philosophy tales. Because it's, it's pure sophistry, right? If someone, can, if, if someone can get you to believe that you can't see something if you're incompetent, then your vanity and your insecurity will allow you to be exploited. And that is... Uh, yeah, Fox and the Grapes, eh, the Sour Grapes thing is okay, but it's not quite as powerful as The Emperor's New Clothes. Now, for those who don't know, um, the, the, the king, um, uh, two tailors come up to the king and say, we can make you the most magnificent outfit, your majesty. And not only will it be the most beautiful thing that's ever been made in God's green acre, but it also gives the amazing power to you, to everyone, that anybody who's not competent to do their job can't actually see the clothing. All right, we talked about this Peter principle. You get promoted beyond your, like just past your level of competence. I was waiting for that for the first 14 and a half years of the show. <laughs> Whether that happened or not, I guess it's up to you. But the king, because he's vainglorious, he um, wants the most beautiful outfit that can be imagined, and they have nothing. These tailors, they don't have any, they have nothing. And they just keep pretending, oh, look at the beautiful cut of this cloth and look how it shimmers and look at how it shines. It's like starlight reflected from the eyes of God and all of that, right? The king can't see anything, but of course, only people incompetent for their job can't see this fabric. So he's like, oh, magnificent, beautiful. Of course, they're laughing behind their, you know, <laughs> right? And so he parades around, first privately, then publicly, and he's butt naked, right? But of course, everyone thinks that everyone else can see the clothing, because they think that they're the only people who are incompetent to their job. And everyone's, oh, this is magnificent, it's wonderful, magnificent, right? Then he ends up sitting on the, uh, his, his fat, greasy, hairy king ass on the back of a horse, and he's riding down the whole street, right? Everyone, oh, it's magnificent, like, beautiful, wonderful. And, you know, he's paid these sophist 
nonsense lying tailors, hundreds of gold pieces and so on. And, and finally, of course, out of the mouths of babes, this little boy says, why is the king naked? <laughs> Very few of us can survive naked, slow motion horseback riding. You know, Bo Derek, uh, Brad Pitt, and that's about it, right? Can you please reenact this meme that's getting posted in the DLive chat? Oh, that's when I was doing a, a, a show with some guy who was a, a supermodel, right? Uh, no, he was dating a supermodel, and I was trying to, um, you know, pretend like I was seducing him or something like that, right? Um, you know, I don't know that that needs to be done. Um, I don't know that that needs to be done post-cancer as well as pre-cancer, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm doing pretty well. I actually lost about 11 pounds over the last year for a variety. You just got to have less and less to eat as you get older. It's just very, very sad. Anyway. All right, what do we got here? Another couple of cues. Very nice chat with you guys. Sorry about the interruption earlier. It's a very good computer that I've got as a whole, but yeah, just occasionally. Let's see here. There was also the shirtless sticks interview. Well, it wasn't shirtless. I just I wore just the leather jacket that I had from when I was younger. Am I looking shredded? Eh, not bad. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. All right. Let's see here. Last question. Uh, Black Lives Matter has set race relations back 50 years. Yeah, this is uh, that's a problem. It's definitely a, it's definitely a problem. And, and that's their goal, right? It's, it's, I mean, as you know, it's founded as a Marxist organization, and this is all pretty, uh, pretty um, red pill 101. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough. Why do you say you won't discuss politics anymore? Um, because th there's nothing that I can say that's more vivid than warlords taking over part of Seattle and, and people getting shot. And, and like, I, I can't, I won't say I can't compete, but it's, there's not, there's not a place for what, I can bring to the table in the realm of politics. And that doesn't mean that the time for arguments is past. It's nothing quite as dramatic as that. But, and I, you know, this was all happening, you know, when was the last time you saw me do a presentation on uh, the untruths about Donald Trump? Well, it's been years, right? I, I haven't really been doing much. When was the last PowerPoint I did on on politics? You know, it was probably like in American politics. I mean, you know, I did the Awan brothers. I did... Uh, um, uh, I guess it would be George Floyd and so on, right? But that wasn't specifically politics. That was more policing. I mean, it certainly had political implications. But when was the last time that you saw me do uh, an in-depth dive into some contemporary political topic, particularly in America? It's been a long time. And even if there's one relatively recently, which I can't think of right now. I know I did some stuff for the Canadian election last year, I guess around last November. But I haven't there hasn't really been much to talk about in terms of politics because politics now. All right, let's, let's do it. Uh, let's do it. So politics now is a matter of personal willpower in your personal relationships. That's all it is. That's all it is. You know, 
what happens if the Marxists take over, and I know what happens. It's just, no, no, there's nothing. There's nothing I need to tell you about that. I mean, there's nothing, right? Uh, or, or if it goes hard left, and you know, maybe you're a big fan of accelerationism and so on, but the against me argument, which I first was one of my very first public speeches, like twelve years ago, ten years ago, something like that. Hmm. 2008, 2010, New Hampshire. Anyway, so it's simply a matter of personal willpower. There's not another PowerPoint that I need to make after a decade and a half of, you know, 300 million views on YouTube and even more downloads of the podcast, you know, 700 million plus views and downloads. There's nothing else that I need to say. You know everything that you need to know to do what's necessary. And what's necessary, again, it's nothing violent, it's nothing, nothing even that aggressive, it's just assertive. You have to sit down with the people in your life and you have to tell them what's at stake. That's it. That's it. I've made that case so many times, there's no point making it again. You have, if you've been watching this show for a while, you have all the intellectual ammunition that you need to tell people what's at stake. And if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to put those relationships on the line, another PowerPoint from me is just going to be a distraction. That's all it's going to be. You know the level of commitment that the left has, and I, I respect them for that. I really do. I respect them for that. And... If you don't have that commitment, you you can lose. I don't mean the violent commitment. I just really want to be clear about all of that, right? But if they want it more, they'll get it. And if you don't want if you don't want your freedoms as much as they want to control you, then they're going to win, and you're going to lose, and then you're going to regret. You're going to regret it. I don't want you to regret it. So I would say that there's not that much to talk about with regards to politics uh, anymore. And I, I wasn't doing a huge amount in the realm of politics. I think the realm of philosophy is still really fascinating to me. And I do also think that bringing some beauty to the world as well, you know, I've been, I've been facing these demons, so to speak, for a long time. And I do want to remember what it's like to have beauty in my life and to have not just the fight, but something to fight for. And that's why I want to start reading audiobooks. So hopefully I can show some of the beauty that I think is out there that I've been able to make. And maybe that inspires you to make your own beauty or share the beauty that's out there. But I want to not... You know, it's an old statement from Nietzsche that when you fight beasts, you have to be careful you do not yourself become a beast. And that's a great temptation, of course, with what's been happening lately. So I don't have anything left particularly to impart with regards to politics. I think that the framework to understand what's happening and why, which I actually gave earlier in this stream, that's there, right? That You have that. You know what's happening and you know why it's happening. And I've explained that for a decade and a half. And 
when they get rid of reason, the only way we can resolve things is through force. And the force starts implicit in the realm of the state, and then it becomes explicit in the realm of riots. And that's how it plays. It's what I've been talking about for many, many... So I don't... It's sort of like this. Like if I say, like say you're a smoker. I'm not talking about you personally, but obviously, right? So let's say you're a smoker and, and I keep telling you, you know, smoking's bad for you and you quit smoking and here's a picture of some guy's lung and here's some guy, you know, smoking out of his throat and all that kind of stuff, right? And let's say you don't listen, you don't listen, you don't listen, right? And then what happens is you get a real scare. Like you, you feel something in your lung. You go, there's a lump on your lung. And you know, maybe it turns, out, it turns out to be benign or whatever. And that's really like terrifying, right? And then, and then your best friend dies of lung cancer who started smoking around the same time as you. Like at some point, there's not anything left for me to say. You understand? There's nothing left. Got the cancer scare. Best friend died of lung cancer. I've been telling you for years to quit smoking. At some point, like if you're not going to learn from your cancer scare and you're not going to learn from your best friend dying of cancer and you haven't listened to me for 20 years, what is there to say? The dangerous effects of anti-rational ideologies are becoming so vividly manifest that what am I going to say? When you can see the horrible footage of people's shoes flying off with their spun like a rag doll through the air because someone panicked and hit the gas or didn't see them because they were protesting at night. When you see the sickening violence that, that you see on the timelines of Twitter and other places, the racial attacks, the, the I mean, children getting shot and, and the brutality that is the constant stream of this stuff. What can mere words add to the vividness of such images? I don't have much to add to that. The nutritionist can say, eat well, exercise. But if you don't do any of that, and you have a heart attack, you don't go to the nutritionist, you go to ER, right? Different people than me will probably step forward to try and deal with these situations. And I don't know what that means. I have no idea what that means. But the people who are good at predicting and warning against are not good necessarily at dealing with the thing itself. And I, again, I don't know what that means. I just know that it's not me. And I, you know, I desperately wanted to be peaceful and reasonable and so on. But um, it does not look particularly to me as if things are heading that way, to put it mildly. So, and you know, I did sort of say, well, I'll keep talking as long as I can. And I'm really, really happy to be talking with you guys tonight. I really am. It's, it's, it's wonderful to have these conversations. Uh, this is where we would keep the flame alive. But as far as, to me, it would almost be an insult to philosophy to continue to bring reason to the table when reason is not sitting at the table, so to speak, if that makes sense. All right. Let me uh, close it off. Don't you think we live in a time where it's irrelevant to win debates when the other side use, uh, has violence in the media to back it? I don't know. Um, 
Do you think if Trump wins that he'll get channels reinstated or at least the censorship solved? I don't know. See, I think if Trump wins, um, well, I don't think that. I pretty much know that. If Trump wins, which is uh, much less certain of that now than I was in 2015, 2016. But if Trump wins, I think he's going to be pretty much tied up with the left's reaction to him winning, which is going to be, I wouldn't be celebrating in cities myself. Just, you know, a particular, my particular preference. But um, I would, uh, I, America is going to go nuts if Trump wins. I mean, you understand that, right? I mean, you th you think George Floyd was something. I mean, you wait till Trump wins. They're not going to accept it. They're, they're, you know? They felt that they were so close already and to be interrupted for another couple of years. <sighs> Demographics has probably done its work, to be frank. Demographic change has probably done its work. And... Um, who knows, you know, if they do this mail-in ballot stuff, it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be ridiculous, right? And then, of course, you know, they, they, I doubt that they will accept. I mean, they didn't accept Trump over Hillary, right? I mean, that's what the whole Russia thing was about. They didn't accept it at all. It's what the impeachment thing was about, right? So they didn't accept it. But, of course, they'll project that Trump won't accept it. And then if he tries to question the outcome of an election, which appears to be somewhat hinky, it's going to be fascism and Pinochet and blah, 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 blah. And uh, it's... Um, that's pretty rough. Never seen this before in human history. Honestly, never seen this before in human history. We've got 70 million Trump supporters in America. If they perceive that the election is invalid, I mean, God. I mean, I think the left is going to perceive the election as invalid if they don't win. I don't know how it's going to happen the other way. But uh, as I say, I'm not entirely positive that a PowerPoint from me is going to do much one way or the other. So, all right. So, they said the 1965 immigration would not change our demographics. Yeah, sure, of course, yeah. Well, of course they did, right? I mean, why? if you wanted to change him, wouldn't you, right? Um, if Biden wins, the left will be placated much more than they are now. The elites want Trump in to further their divide and conquer. Um, I don't know. It's just the realm of politics. I don't know. No, uh, the, the, the left, they don't get placated when they get power. I mean, they don't. Historically, it, it gets much worse, so. Uh, right. Uh, oh, yeah, the, the 6.5 trillion, was it? Is that right? Let me just see here. Um, I wanted to get that statistic. I meant to grab it before the show. Let me just get it now so we can, we can close on this, right? Um, let's see here. Oh, yeah, please don't forget to drop by uh, freedomain.com forward slash donate to help out. I would really, really appreciate that. Um, freedomain.com forward slash donate. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Let's see here. Yeah, the um, the coronavirus thing is pretty wild when it comes to how much the Fed is propping things up. Uh, that is some pretty pretty wild stuff. 
I'm just trying to get some more recent debt from this, right? So Reason.com, a site I have an ambivalent relationship with. But Veronique de Rougy, she was on my show a couple of times years ago. She's very, very good. When COVID-19 arrived in America, Uncle Sam was already deep in debt. The federal government was poised to have a permanent annual budget deficit of at least $1 trillion. Debt was already sky high thanks to demographic trends and a few entitlement programs that experts had warned us about for decades. But after the recent three months of frenzied bipartisan spending, those previous balances seem like small potatoes. Now, when is this from? Uh, this is from the uh, August-September issue. Uh, I don't know when it was written. Uh, pretty recently. So... Emergency spending related to COVID-19 has increased government outlays by $3.6 trillion. The net deficit impact of this fiscal incontinence is roughly $2.4 trillion. So far, $1.4 trillion of this authorized spending has been committed. Another $400 billion has been authorized through executive action with a net deficit impact of $80 billion. And $300 of the $400 billion has already been committed. The Federal Reserve has made what is essentially an open-ended commitment to continually buy debt from states, municipalities, and businesses and to purchase treasury bonds, notes, and bills. The Fed has printed and loaned out $2 trillion so far and is, is expected to create $3.5 trillion in new money by the end of 2020. Where is the money going? $500 billion fund for businesses with under 10,000 employees or less than $2.5 billion in annual revenue. Uh, gosh, Medicare payments to medical providers increased. Federal student loan payments and interest through September 30th. Higher education. Emergency relief fund. Yeah, defund the universities. That's the key. Forget, forget about defunding the police right now. Defund the universities. Uh, so anyway, I'll, uh, I'll post this in the chat and uh, put it in the show notes, but uh, it is uh, absolutely wild how much uh, money is being created. And it's all wallpaper overing, it's all wallpapering over uh, the, the huge holes that uh, this has all uh, engendered in the American economy, right? All right. Well, thanks everyone so much. A great pleasure to chat with you guys tonight. Uh, sorry for that hiccup earlier, but look at that. We've gone through very, very nicely and uh it's a great a great joy to chat with you guys this evening uh that makes uh you know it's been i'll be honest with you it's been a tough been a tough two weeks um but uh, drinking deep at the well of the community is a a good way to recharge so have yourself a great great evening lots of love from up here uh or i guess down here if you're further up here than up here and uh i will talk to you guys soon there's a call-in show to uh, friday night Friday night, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and um, I will uh, do more live streams. It was a real pleasure. Talk to you guys soon. All the best. Bye.